0: Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology, investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Eli Bildner is a senior director at Guild Education where he helps to provide opportunity for America's workforce through education and upskilling, all funded by employers. Eli was also the co-executive director and co-founder of Rivet School, a nonprofit which simplifies college by pairing an accredited online degree with real-world supports, such as a personal coach, financial aid, a community of peers, career planning, emergency funding, tech support, and co-working space. Eli also led international growth and was a product manager at Coursera and earned his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Eli
1: Bildner, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Thank you so much, Alex. It's truly a privilege to be here with you. And I suspect you're going to edit this out, but you and I obviously worked together many years ago. You're one of my favorite people I've ever worked with, just one of the most thoughtful people in the education world and beyond. So truly, I love every chance that we have to get to chat. Oh,
0: that's so nice. No, I won't edit that out. My God. It's Good, so, man. So Good man.
1: I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Eli, you have made the rounds in some of really the biggest names in the ed tech world. Walk us through your journey through educational technology, through Coursera, with philanthropies, with Rivet School, and now with Guild Education.
1: Yeah, sure. I suspect that the origins of my journey are not dissimilar for a lot of people who end up spending their time in alternative education or alternative forms of education and for me it sort of started after college I was doing a Fulbright research fellowship in China and the dirty secret about the Fulbright which hopefully no one from the Fulbright program is listening is that like they actually don't really care what you, <laughs> you do. They have a bunch of rules but there's no like deliver no one reads your paper. I mean maybe one person reads the paper you produce at the end of the but it's really for you. And I was just not very accustomed having been the recipient of a lot of Very kind of goal, ambition oriented education to just being in a place where I had time, space, funding to just like explore my curiosity. And I I found that I just really didn't know what to do with it. And that was probably a little bit much to call it a radicalizing moment, but it was a moment of recognition. That I'd done a lot of learning. I'd become very, you know, nominally very educated, but I I wasn't a good learner and particularly self-directed learner. And that inspired when I came back to the States working in the early days on one of the first online coding boot camps and then joining Coursera as an early employee, obviously where we work together. And then, and I could talk more about this, figuring out the places where I really wanted to push and founding Ribbit School and now now coming to Guild.
0: Gotcha. So so really your experience realizing that even somebody who's been to a lot of great schools doesn't necessarily learn how to learn or feel self-directed. Probably made you realize that that was probably a very common problem.
1: For sure, yeah, that's spot on. And you know, this has become a theme in in my work and what I care about. You know, learning how to learn—the name of the great and probably I think one of the most popular Coursera courses—is a skill. And also learning what to learn. You know, there's such a universe of knowledge. There are many. There are countless hundreds thousands of PhD worths of education available on Wikipedia, but without curation, without direction, without guidance, mentorship, it's not not meaningful. And yeah, you're right, it's especially folks without access to social capital without access to kind of a broad aperture on like world of work, like this is a big problem and providing those kinds of supports that bring together again, this like wealth of content that's out in the world with direction, curation, mentorship is something that I've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about and working on.
0: Yeah. And that makes a terrific segue to your founding of Rivet School, which is really very much down that path of guidance and support and mentorship and making sure that people have everything they need to succeed. So, you know, you were the co-executive director and co-founder of Rivet School. And Rivet School is all about trying to help students both enroll and graduate from college and get degrees that are needed to accelerate their lives you know based on what you're saying what made you focus on this particular need and in the take this approach
1: sure so one of the early criticisms of coursera that's persisted to some degree is that okay moocs are great but no one finishes them and i remember feeling very defensive if i you know at a sort of defensive stance this question early on. I was like, why are people picking on us? Like, it's great that this it's like you're building a library, and then someone's like, Well, you know, people are checking out books, but are they really reading them? And you know, there's the merit to response, but there's also merit to the critique, you know, because ultimately, like, it matters whether people are able to learn what they set out to learn and derive some really tangible benefit from that. And, you know, as I spent more time at Coursera, I, I took this critique more and more seriously, thinking about. You know, populations of learners that you know, didn't have the time in their days, didn't have the support, academic support, socio-emotional support, coaching, wraparound resources, technology, to really take advantage of this like amazing library that we built. So I became interested in educational models that were holistic and that really thought about this broader experience of learning. And long story, maybe medium, I did some of this exploration in the context of of going to business school. My second year of business school was introduced to the founder or a founder and board chair of an organization called Kepler, which is a fascinating organization. And it's been gotten a lot of great recognition. They recently received a grant from Mackenzie Scott, which was was awesome to see. And what Kepler was doing was they are based in Kigali, Rwanda. They were taking a US-based online degree offered by Southern New Hampshire University, a competency-based degree program, combining it with a lot of, with a residential college experience, So students would come to Kepler, they'd live in dorms while they were studying this, you know, going through this online curriculum with a bunch of both wraparound supports and then kind of just-in-time teaching and a lot of, like, career support. So every student at Kepler is required to do an internship. And I was introduced, actually, in the context of a potential job opportunity. I went down there for a final round interview, and I realized, one, this model is amazing, and two, that you know, I actually really want to do this work closer to home in California. And so I came back to California and was really fortunate to connect with a set of collaborators, including my co-founder and then co-executive director of Ribbit School, Jeff Manicero, and a founding board of really visionary and committed founding board of directors, Ted Williams, Lauren Dunn, and John Coglin to found Ribbit School. And, you know, our thesis, which I think, you know, very much, it's not like, you know, a brilliant insight. It's just like the way the state of the world is that, you know, the reason that college persistence rates for traditionally underserved students are just, are just abysmally low. But the truth is, it's not just college persistence rates. Right? Also, you know, even for students who do persist through to a degree, say from underrepresented backgrounds, you know, time to completion could be seven, eight, nine, even 10 years, you know, the average time, to a bachelor's degree for someone in California who goes through the community college system and transfers to a CSU is around seven or eight years. Just think of the opportunity cost of that educational journey. And, you know, our thesis was that, you know, these students could complete. They could complete faster. They could complete in ways that better connected them to the jobs with the right set of supports. The fundamental problem was not the content, not the curriculum, it was everything around it. And so we set out to build a college experience that was, you know, designed with a particular student at the center. And that was just, you know, radically student first. And, you know, happy to talk more about what that looked like in practice. But that was, you know, the kind of guiding philosophy of Rivet school.
0: Yeah, it's a thesis that makes a lot of sense and has a lot of evidence behind it. People who have been studying college attrition and persistence rates, as you say, especially first-generation college students and underserved groups have often found that it's the difference between graduating and not graduating from college, it usually isn't about the difficulty of the material or anything like that. It's about, did somebody have transportation? Could they afford a textbook? Did they have a computer? I do want to double click on the types of supports that you provide to Rivet students because I find them really fascinating. So, yeah. you know, from a high level, there's things like financial aid, career planning. But I'd love to hear you just go into each of the supports you give and why. Because they, in total, provide just an incredible roadmap for what it means to be student first.
1: Yeah, you know the tough thing about reimagining college education from scratch is even if you try to circumscribe your problem by say you know obviously Reddit School doesn't have a football team we don't even have a campus we have a couple of co working spaces and are you know looking to build out more of a network of co working spaces across the country you know the problem is still huge you know because you're thinking about everything from student financing to academic support to non academic supports to career support and particularly as a startup and particularly as a nonprofit startup which we were and still are in many ways. It's just a lot to bite off. It requires a ton of resourcing. We we're really very fortunate to bring on some really visionary funders in the early days. But you know, I'm not not gonna lie. I've not <laughs> never had you know have not had to date a ten million dollar a year budget. You know, we were extremely small organization and are still you know resource constrained as many nonprofits are. But you know, with that said, we really did try to think about the entire student journey. So our supports include everything from supports around like. Do you have a laptop to even enroll in this program and submit your application and, you know, turn in your first assignments? We give everyone who comes in the door, if they need a laptop, we give them a free loaner laptop and practice, you know, basically the time at Ribbit School's lifetime laptops, essentially free. We provide support around financial aid application, and then we provide additional student financing options. We created our own income share agreement program, which as a side note, happy to chat more about this. We actually ran as one of the as far as I know, only randomized controlled trials, looking at the causal impact of offering this ISA program on kind of early student, preliminary student outcomes, mostly kind of top of funnel things like enrollment, early persistence. We then, you know, the core of our model is a coaching relationship. So one Ribbit School coach works with a very small panel of Ribbit School fellows or students about 40 to 50 students, it's more often more like 40, and provides really like a full complement of supports, everything from academic supports, to, you know, helping students build their kind of productivity systems, understand like the technology they need to use to be successful in school. And then as students go through their college experience, they continue to work with their coach. And then as they think about career options, we have a whole kind of career program that includes things like facilitated micro internships, you know, obviously job search support and stuff like that. And yeah, that's at least the big picture of the supports we offer. I want to maybe highlight a couple things though that are more like around guiding philosophies that I think maybe could be interesting for listeners. So one thing that I think is really important, I mean, I'm sure many listeners will resonate with this, you know, handoffs are incredibly costly when you think about any sort of facilitated experience. You know, if I if I tell you Alex, like, hey, I think you'd love rock climbing, like you should check out rock climbing, but I'm not available to teach you rock climbing. I'm going to introduce you to my buddy, like Tim, who's a great rock climber, like you should coordinate with Tim and find a time to go to Tim's gym and, you know, learn this new skill. It's just not going to happen. But if I say like, Alex, you're my buddy, we already know each other, like, let's meet 3pm tomorrow at this place. I have all the gear you need, like, you'll probably do it and you may find out that you like it. And education is no different, like that level of handholding is really critical to help someone who might not only have, you know, limited or no college experience or higher education experience, but might have actually had like somewhat traumatic higher education experience and might be in debt. They might have felt a sense of shame from having to withdraw from a former educational institution. So that level handholding is absolutely critical. But it goes beyond that first touch point. You know, it really that needs to persist through the entire journey. And so, at the core of the Rivet School model is this idea of a coach as a one-stop shop. Your coach isn't just an academic support. It isn't just a college success support. Your coach isn't just a financial aid support. Your coach is your ringmaster that might not have all the answers for you in full depth, but they'll probably have the headline and they will walk across the hall with you to make sure that if you need to go somewhere else that you're supported in doing so. So that's sort of meta point one. Meta point two, there will be three unsurprisingly, is that, you know, it turns out like that a lot of the frictions that lead people to pause or withdraw from education experiences are A, really hard to see for people who have, you know, the curse of knowledge and have just been so swimming in the water that, you know, it's just like, I don't even, how is this a thing? But at the same time, you know, are very teachable. So just to give one example, someone who's doing, you know, an online degree program, you know, they're probably looking at a lot of text that's on a computer. Imagine if that person has never learned keyboard shortcuts, and they have to like scan, you know, for one assignment, they have to scan like a huge block of text define some keyword and then define it. You know, imagine how much time it would take them to, you know, scroll through the page, like search line by line for that keyword, then go to a dictionary app and then define it. Now, imagine if they literally just know control F or Apple F, like how much quicker would that be for them? So one of the first things that we do at Rivet School is actually give people like a 30 minute hour long lesson on keyboard shortcuts. And it turns out that kind of thing is extremely useful and important. Another thing we do is we install a password manager for students. I can't tell you the number of times that students have, you know, haven't logged progress for a couple of weeks. And then their coach will reach out and say like, hey, what's going on? Because of course we, we see that on our you know, data systems and the student will say, oh, I forgot my password and yeah, I'm not sure where to reset it. And meta point three, and then I promise not will stop and I'm talking a lot, is that one of the, in my mind, the big failure modes of higher education for the types of students that we work with, primarily at road school, traditionally underrepresented and underserved students is that it is, these students have an incredibly complicated lives, very busy lives. They're working at least one job, oftentimes multiple jobs you know half of our students are kids they probably have other responsibilities outside you know kids and work too if at best education is their third priority and I think we can all speak from experience that something's the third thing on your to-do list in a day you're probably not going to get to it. And so because of this like it's just not realistic for students to frankly stay enrolled in a nominally four-year education program, straight through for four years, or two years, or even one year, like students need breaks, you know, they need breaks to reprioritize to focus on other things in their lives. And then, you know, if you're successful, they'll come back. The problem is that traditional higher education has no model, financial model, staffing model for engaging people who are not actively enrolled in your educational institution. You know, if I'm not enrolled, you know, if I go to one class in my local community college, and then I'm not enrolled the next semester, you know, maybe I'll get an automated email that says, hey, it's time to register for classes. No one's going to call me. No one's going to check in to see how I'm doing. No one's going to text me if I'm like, you know, six hours before the registration deadline and I haven't submitted, you know, a class list. And you need those things. And that's a big thing that we do at Rivet School too, is that we think a lot about this experience, what we call pause students. So people who are in between or not actively enrolled, but still need support so that they can come back and continue to be successful. Okay, sorry, end rant, but hopefully that provided some visibility to what we do.
0: No, the opposite. I think that was a masterclass in how to be student first and how to, you know, pull away the veil and truly understand what students need. I love the idea of teaching keyboard shortcuts and teaching incredibly practical skills up front that are going to save so much time later. It's interesting to hear you talk about the sort of idea of a one-person ringmaster, because it reminds me, you know, Tressie McMillan Cotton's book, Lower Ed, about the for-profit education industry, they have the exact same realization, but with totally different incentives, right? They realize that if you have the same person walking yeah. for profit student through their whole experience, always <laughs> a touch point, they're much more likely to enroll, they're much more likely yeah. to jump over all the, you know, the financial aid humps. And they do it, you know, in a way that is a little bit sinister, you might say, or it certainly has a profit motive behind it. Hearing you talk about that ringmaster model, that one touch model from that incredibly positive perspective of having a guide and a coach and somebody you can rely on to get you the answers and to call you when you're falling behind is really inspiring. I'm sure our listeners find it, you know, wish they had somebody like that for them when they were in school. And it's even more important for, you know, underrepresented groups who don't have the cultural capital and don't know some of these things. So... It's very inspiring to hear you talk about this. You know, I wanted to drill down because one of the things that can get lost, and I know you you stay so close to the students just as a rule wherever you go, but one of the things that can get lost when we talk about this type of strategy and planning is the actual stories of students. You're mentioning students with kids, students with jobs, multiple jobs. I'd love to hear you speak, you know, obviously don't use any names, but some of the lived experiences of some of the Rivet students who you and your team have worked with that's that really stuck with you.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. (laughs) You know, the temptation here is always to give the high flyers success stories. And I'm incredibly proud of the academic outcomes that we've seen at Rivet School. But the reality is that it's also hard and and not everyone is successful. And we can talk more about the implications of this. So, Let me give a couple examples of students. You know, maybe I'll give it like a high flyer, a sort of middle of the road learner and someone who was not successful to give you the full picture. Seems fair. So actually I'll start with the not successful is that, you know, one thing that's been inordinately frustrating to me is seeing challenges around articulation and transfer credits. And, you know, we don't have an articulation system in this country. It's all essentially institution by institution. You know, obviously that's a little bit glossing over a lot of nuance, but You know, I'm thinking of one particular learner who had maybe 80 transfer credits, 90 transfer credits, and for a variety of reasons, and I didn't really go into the particulars of our model, but we basically partner with a couple of accredited rivet schools, a standalone 51 c degree nonprofit. We are not a college ourselves. We partner with currently two, soon to be three institutions of higher education to enroll students in their programs and provide this sort of layer of wraparound supports outside of beyond that. And for this one particular learner, you know, it was like a year long saga of trying to collect transcripts from, you know, five or six different educational institutions, you know, some of those transcripts not counting because of gpa issues others because you know she had a bunch of elective credits but didn't have you know general education credits to transfer in there's again a lot of like complexity here but there's basically a block transfer system she needed to meet a certain threshold of credits to transfer in and you know i remember speaking on the phone with the student and her basically crying you know realizing that You know, she'd spend years of her life accumulating these credits and they just weren't going to enable her to transfer in or articulate, you know, into our program. And, you know, she, she couldn't even get in the door because of, you know, some of the obstacles in higher education that, you know, we weren't able to solve. So that's a failure mode. And that's kind of top of the funnel. A student who sort of maybe like embodies a more like average or middle of the road student experience. I'm thinking of a student who came to Rivet School who. Right out of high school, went to a semi-selective, maybe even more than semi-selective, four-year degree program in the UC system and came from a background where you know no one in her family had ever gone to college, didn't know what to expect, you know, was prepared academically, but was not prepared for the environment and just found herself feeling incredibly lonely, isolated, unsure of why she was there, purposeless and you know dropping out probably makes it seem like a more active decision i'd say faded out from that institution and then returned back to her hometown and worked for 4 years in food services learned about rivet school because actually she knew a staff member at rivet school and enrolled and you know made a fair bit of progress out of the gate And, you know, what I've seen from this particular student is that the biggest challenge for her, and we touched on this, you know, talking about pause students and how you need to support them, has been consistent motivation and and the complexity of her life. And, you know, she's made, been years where she's, you know, basically completed, you know, a third of her degree in one year. And then the next year she'll have completed, you know, a tenth of the degree or, you know, made very little progress. And, you know, what we've had to do to support that student is, Just provide really consistent coaching and support, high cadence of touch points, even when there's really nothing academically to talk about, but just that to maintain that tether. And then a high flyer, and this is like really the beauty and the promise of competency based education is that you can have someone come into Rivet School who would otherwise have spent you know eight years say, going through community college, transferring to a bachelor granting program, then maybe going on to a master's. One of our early students at Rivet School came to us. She hadn't gone to college. She'd done a little bit of community college right out of high school, and then returned to community college as a little bit of an older student and felt like man, I feel old here. The teacher is talking to us like we're five-year-olds. This is just not the place for me. Learn about Rivet School, came to us, and within two, two and a half years, completed her bachelor's degree from scratch, coming with basically no transfer credits, and then went on to do a one-year master's and completed that. And I think what really drew on a lot of teaching that we've done around self-efficacy and self-directed learning at Rivet School And, you know, over the course of three years, had a bachelor's degree, master's degree, paid very little out of pocket for the entire experience, basically got a full scholarship for all of our Revit School. And that's the promise of, you know, Revit School for students who are able to latch on to the competency-based environment and and really take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, they're really compelling, you know, anecdotes and stories. And I, I think what they all speak to, all three of them, is that. You know, students come, especially adult students, you know, come into educational environments with this huge amount of background. And sometimes it's baggage, sometimes it's positive experiences, sometimes it's psychological trauma, basically. And, you know, their likelihood to make it through a a relatively bureaucratic, you know, system, as much of higher ed is, you know, sort of assumes that they can overcome whatever they're dealing with. And often without much support. And I think it speaks to the rivet model and you know, and models that really, really go out of their way to support students. I mean, when you mention having a cadence of check-ins even that are non-academic, I mean that almost feels like therapy or social work or mentorship in the traditional sense. And I can imagine how valuable that must be for a student.
1: Yeah. And it's- Not to linger too much on students and on some, you know, I don't know, things that maybe fall into the category of a little bit, you know, mushy and hopefully not too mawkish, but you know, that stuff really matters. Like it matters if you feel like you belong, if you feel like someone cares about you. And at Ribbit School, like we do the grand gestures. I'll talk about it in a second. We do the small things. Like every student on their birthday gets a little gift card. On Mother's Day, we send, or Father's Day, we send out gift cards to, you know, mothers and fathers. We send out swag at kind of key milestones. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned the for-profit college example. You I, right as I was starting Ribbit School, she spoke to a bunch of, I forget what kind of term the bar is, you know, enrollment coaches or counselors who come from for-profit institutions really understand this. Because I think they do a masterful job oftentimes to knock great ends to, you know, around this kind of stuff. And we're obviously trying to purpose it in a nonprofit and, you know, deeply mission-focused context. But this stuff really matters, you know, just to give one more example of kind of where rubber hits the road on this front. We have a student who came to us She's an employee in a school district, hoping to become a teacher. And needed a bachelor's degree to do that, and she was doing great, making a lot of academic progress. And then she got diagnosed with a really serious illness and potentially life-threatening illness. And you know, she had a pause, She was really emotional about that, and you know, felt a sense of not failure, but like real disappointment that you know she had this goal and she was tracking toward. It. And obviously, there's a whole you know emotional side of her illness and the scariness and seriousness of that. And you know, like. I don't want to oversell what we did to support that student, but we did through a connection of mine actually managed to find a health supportive chef who was able to put together a week worth of meals and then also some recipes for the student. And the student, you know, did a lot of things I'm sure in their journey to heal. And again, like we were not responsible for curing them or healing them. And I wouldn't make that claim at all, but I do think, you know, in that moment we were able to show that, you know, through thick and thin we stand by our students. We stood by this particular student And that student later came back, really thankfully ended up healing and being able to re-enroll and completed her bachelor's degree and in a graduation ceremony cited that as a defining moment for her. And, you know, you can spend thousands of dollars on student supports, but if someone doesn't actually feel like you care about them, it's really not worth much.
0: Yeah, that's really insightful. So. So Eli, you are now at Guild Education, one of the giant success stories of EdTech in the last few years. And Guild has some of the same DNA as, as Rivet School and Coursera do in that they, they work to provide educational benefits to those who may not have otherwise considered a college degree as an attainable potential outcome. And they sort of serve a marketplace model between education providers and those who are seeking education who don't always know how to get it. So what gets you most excited about Guild's approach and mission?
1: Yeah, so I remain involved at Ribbit School and earlier this year, or late last year, transitioned from my day-to-day role there and now an advisory role, my wonderful co-founder and co-executive director, now full ED, Jeff Manicero, is holding down the fort at Ribbit School and doing an amazing job and have moved my day-to-day to to, to Guild education, as you mentioned. And what I find really interesting about Guild is that, you know, one of the, obviously the biggest challenges across all of (laughs) education is finding the students who can benefit from what you're offering. And Guild has this incredible route to doing that through these partnerships with some of the country's most iconic employers like, you know, Walmart, Target, you mentioned a bunch of folks. And, you know, this isn't just convenient from a Guild perspective or from the perspective of the learning partners, the academic institutions that Guild works with. It also ends up being a real interesting opportunity for Guild to deliver a better, Guild and its academic partners to deliver a better experience for students. Because you can think about the entire employer and learner lifecycle, you can think about not only like, how do you find learners, how do you socialize this benefit, or make them aware of this benefit and the, help them find a program that works best for them. But you can also make sure that programs you're offering are actually aligned with not just jobs generically, but the very jobs that exist that are, you know, higher paying or better benefits or whatever it is within their current employer, you can work with your employer partners to help them think about frontline workforce as a talent pipeline. So to not only prioritize hiring from the frontline, training and hiring from the frontline, but also thinking about changing your culture and your systems to make that kind of hiring process work. So like, do you have roles that are stepping stones to higher skilled roles that are accessible for someone who is coming from the front line who's just completed an academic program. So Guild, by virtue of its employer partnerships, really has the privilege of thinking about this entire life cycle in coordination with its employer partners and academic partners. And I found that really interesting and compelling.
0: Yeah. And just to provide a little context for any of our listeners who don't know as much about Guild, you know, it's Guild provides what they call education as a benefit to large employers and employers that have lots of frontline and service workers. Like Eli just mentioned, there's companies like Walmart, Target, Disney, Lowe's, and then restaurant industry giants like Taco Bell or Chipotle or Five Guys. And these are enormous employers. Walmart alone has over 2 million associates and all of these places hire in huge numbers of people. And then, then matches them. It provides education to the frontline workers with online education providers like Southern New Hampshire, eCornell, Penn Foster, and a number of others. So Eli, you know, I think one thing that I've always been curious about is, it's pretty clear why learners, you know, would want to do this. And it's very clear why schools would want to have more learners. But the case to make to a Walmart or a Taco Bell about why they should support their restaurant workers or their frontline associates in getting full degrees, I think it'd be interesting to hear, you know, what is the big benefit for employers of this? And what are the sort of different flavors of it?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, the benefit that employers offer their employees through their partnership with guild you know it's a good thing like it's the right thing to do it's a great offering but it's also not charity like we don't want it to be charity, it would not be sustainable at the level of spend that, you know, some of our employers, well, you know, all of our employer partners relative to their size are putting out, it just would not be, it wouldn't be sustainable. And so it needs to drive business value to our employer partners, in addition to, you know, the value it obviously provides to members. And it does this in a bunch of different ways. You know, obviously, hiring is incredibly expensive. If you're able to take someone who would otherwise, you know, an employee who would otherwise, you know, stay at your company for a year and help them you know, stay there for three or four years, the time it takes to finish an educational program, like that's incredible value to your business. And it's incredible value to that, to that worker mm-hmm. employee. I mean, there's a real, you know, dual benefit or win-win there. At the same time, and this is something we're increasingly pushing on, you know, it's particularly hard for a lot of these huge employers, I and mean, they have to fill not only a ton of frontline roles, but a ton of middle skill roles and higher skill roles. And oftentimes, you know, They're looking externally to make those hires. There's no reason they could not look internally. And many of our employer partners already have like amazing programs set up to facilitate that kind of work you know, but Guild wants to supercharge that, you know, we want the front line to be the talent pipeline for the largest employers in this country. And, you know, we think it's entirely possible. We know it's possible. And that's another benefit that we can drive both for members or for our employees of our employer partners and for employers themselves. So yeah, the headline is, you know, obviously, talent acquisition, you know, people out there learn about this benefit, Americans aren't just looking for a job, they're looking for opportunity, they want to know that, if I come work at your company, you know, outside of a paycheck, what will this bring me? How will this help me? And everyone, no matter where you are, where you come from is hungry for that deserves that. And then talent retention, you know, am I valued? And um, Do I have opportunities to learn and grow at this company? And then, you know, is there a future? Like, is there an opportunity, for instance, to get a better job? And, you know, obviously, that'll bring me value. And that'll hopefully bring value to my and my employer as well.
0: It's interesting to hear that some of these companies are beginning to think about, you know, how the education ties into the corporate ladder, for lack of a better word. You know, how it ties into a very systematic set of roles that increase in responsibility that are directly connected to the educational benefit. You know, if somebody comes into Walmart as a store worker and completes a full A full degree while they're there, they can be qualified to move directly into a role at Walmart that has higher pay, more responsibility, a middle skills role that is designed specifically for that use case. That becomes a very interesting ecosystem and it sort of puts education and employment into closer alignment than we usually see. Yeah, that's right. You know, speaking of, you know, (laughs) thinking about the growth that comes with a college degree, you know, you and I both really like to think about sort of education writ large and sort of sociology of education. I think we share this interest. And, you know, there's a long question, but I'll try to go quickly. You know, you've worked at a lot of different companies that we've mentioned today dedicated to improving, you know, access and retention in higher education. We live in a country right now where, you know, college attendance rates have, after increasing for a long time, basically stalled out to about a third of the population. That's pretty much where we see them flattening, but where Having a bachelor's degree has basically become the main predictor of, of many things in life, of health outcomes, of life satisfaction, of income. And it's in some ways the only really reliable ticket to the middle class, let alone high powered jobs in business or government. So I'm curious from your perspective, you, you've studied this a lot. You know, how do we get to the state where basically two thirds of the population of the U S are basically locked out of the middle class because of their educational requirements? And what do you think we can do as an ed tech community to ensure that we are not condemning the majority of Americans to all sorts of you know, health and income problems that come with the lack of education right now?
1: For sure. A couple thoughts here, and I hope they cohere in some way. You know, One is that Obviously, there's a big question about to what extent education and particularly you know, credentials are actually driving opportunity or being used as essentially a gatekeeper. Credential inflation is very real. Experience inflation is very real. You know, We expect to see that in you know, looser job markets than it, as the job market has tightened over you know, the past year. You know, I, I think I just saw earlier today, I forgot what state it was, but a large state announced that they've removed... Bachelor's degree requirements for all state government jobs. And you know, you expect to see things like that, and that's great. At the same time, requirements are requirement. That's you know a basic threshold. But then there's like, you know, a hiring manager and whatever heuristics they have in their head, and you can tell them, hey, don't factor in a person's where they went to school. But if they still still see a school on the resume, then they 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 will. You know, there, there's really interesting literature on how much additional education actually drives value. You know, the, the economic framing here is to what extent does education build human capital versus function as a signaling mechanism? There's a lot in this book I don't agree with, but I think Brian Kaplan's Case Against Education, I think I'm getting the title of the book right, is is a really helpful framing of that debate. One of the most interesting articles I saw on this recently, I, it's not new, I think it, it was a study that was done in 2016, actually, looked at whether mafiosos showed a benefit from additional education and looked at this really interesting data set from the I think like mid-century mid 20th century on uh, educational attainment for basically it was able to see how many mafiosos had gone to college versus hadn't compared that to other you know non mafioso types in the sort of in analogous demographic groups in the population and they estimated that Actually, it turns out that mafiosos who got more education actually had higher lifetime earnings, which, you know, you wouldn't expect that a college degree is a particularly important credential in the mafia, at least in the mid 20th century. So, you know, the case they were making was that this puts a little bit of weight on the, on the scale in favor of the value of education and human capital development versus pure signaling. That's neither here nor there, but a really interesting study. But I think like at a high level, Over the past couple of years, it's been really interesting to see public opinion polls that look at American attitudes towards education, towards degrees in particular. You know, one thing that, you know, we started seeing as early as 2019, 2020 was increasing skepticism around full degree programs and preferences for shorter form programs like boot camps, certificates, credentials, shorter form credentials. At that time, I was sort of agnostic on whether that trend would continue, and it has. And as more research has come out on the why, you know, one thing that's been really interesting to see is that it's not that Americans are skeptical of the value of a degree, they're skeptical of the relative value of the degree, the total package, essentially the ROI. And the ROI incorporates a number of things. It incorporates costs. So as the cost of traditional degree has soared, you know, ROI goes down it incorporates benefit. And I think, you know, we've seen college wage premium. It's really hard to measure, but, you know, at least be somewhat stable. So I don't think that there's necessarily a huge change there, despite, you know, some efforts to, you know, remove college degree requirements. But I think the big one is people have realized that, you know what, man, four years is a long time, let alone eight years. I don't know if I'm going to complete this thing. Like, I just don't know if I can do it. So better do something where it's like, I have a clear line of sight toward completing this. You know, Even if it's not the same as a bachelor's degree, at least it's something, it's cheaper. And, you know, the ROI calculation is positive. there. So I think my push to our community would be to really think about, you know, stackability for sure. And I know that's a buzzword, but it's really important. Like how do these programs, you know, knowing that, every individual unit of education in of itself is not going to be enough. How do these programs combine to form meaningful pathways? And there's a huge difference between that and just, you know, getting some articulation agreement where like, if you have a boot camp, you get like eight credits for it. Because like, I think we all know that more often than not, those credits mean nothing. It's thinking about, you know, going back to this idea of like, you know, taking someone's hand and walking them across the hallway to their next stop, thinking really rigorously about handoffs about how, you know, whatever educational experience you're creating or facilitating feeds into the next thing. The other push I'd have for, you know, our community at large is just to to make sure that we're designing for, you know, a full range of student experiences. And, you know, it's hard because there aren't great public funding sources for continuing education. You know, it's hard to access Pell and Pell isn't even that, you know, that much money relatively, you know, it has not, you know, kept up with inflation in a meaningful way. Interestingly enough, relevant to our world at Guild, The tax deduction that employers can get if they choose to contribute to an employee or the tax deductibility for contributing to employee tuition has remained frozen in 1980 levels, you know, that has not gone up in 40 years. So we do tremendously underfund education for students who need the support and what that means from a you know an entrepreneur's perspective is like if you can't get someone else to pay for it, you can't get the government to pay for it, you know, who can pay for it? So companies can pay for it, but you know, it's easier to get companies to pay for their own employees. It's easier to get companies to pay for employees who already are coming in with a high level of educational attainment and skills. Or you can have, you know, the end consumer pay for it. And, you know, who's most able to pay for Education. It's people who tend to already have a lot of it, so not easy, but it's so important. And there's some great organizations out there that are really innovating to support traditionally underserved and underrepresented learners. You know, I'll give a shout out to my my good friends and our mutual friends at Merit America. We built a really interesting program to support students to a short form credential with a lot of wraparound supports. You know, that are very similar to Rivet School. You know, Generation USA is another great organization. You know, Year Up has been doing this work for, for a long time. Climb High. There are lots of good folks. Co-op careers, lots of great folks out there doing this work. And, you know, we just need more of it.
0: That's a really comprehensive answer is a terrific walkthrough of some of the main issues here, credential inflation, changing the cost structure so that other people, people who have more ability to pay, pay stackability, shorter credentials, more transfer, keeping the line of sight clear, a lot of really, really great points in there. So unfortunately, we're out of time, we could talk for hours about this. We wrap up every podcast with two questions for our guests. The first question is, what is the most exciting trend that you see in the EdTech landscape right now that you think our listeners should keep an eye on?
1: This is an intimidating question, talking to such a learned interlocutor and with such, I'm sure, an amazing audience. Maybe this will feel a little basic, but I would say coaching. I mean, it's just amazing how many companies, nonprofits, you know, government programs have really identified coaching like as the thing. I think will be interesting to see is how coaching, how that kind of taxonomy around coaching develops. Coaching is not just one thing. There are a lot of different types of coaching. The coaching we provide at Ribbit School, which have obviously given some color on, is really different than the coaching, say, you, know, you might see at an, another organization or company. And I think we are at the early days of defining what coaching is, what it can do, how it integrates into a broader, and more comprehensive system of wraparound. So for brevity, I'll, I'll pause there and I'll just name that like, there's a lot more to see if coaching.
0: No, I, I really agree. And I think, you know, it's interesting. You see places like Southern New Hampshire or Purdue, you know, places that have grown enormously, Western governors, grown enormously as these sort of mega universities have also focused really carefully on mentorship and coaching and giving students that sort of personal assistant or personal support, somebody who can answer a lot of different, very meaningful questions. Basically smooth out the speed bumps is sort of how you can yeah. think about it. And I think, you know, when you describe that ringmaster model at Rivet, boy, I, you know, I wish I had had, you know, I had an academic advisor when I was at college. I talked to them probably once every six months for five minutes. And, you know, the idea of having somebody who actually cares not only about your academic outcomes, but about, you know, anything that is keeping you from succeeding, it's an incredible idea, and something that I think we're going to see more and more of. So I think I, I don't yeah. think it's a basic idea at all. It's it it's, could be transformative. And then final final question: What is one book? You can also mention a blog, a Twitter feed, or a newsletter that you would recommend for somebody who wants to dive deeper into any of the topics we discussed today?
1: Yeah, thinking about this question, you know, I think that education is an interesting field. It's intrinsically cross functional. It touches every aspect of society. So You know, I often, there are lots of great education newsletters. I suspect that a lot of your listeners are already subscribed to them. And maybe a bunch of your listeners will be subscribed to the blog that I'm going to mention. But what I love about this blog is that it's so generative. And I find like what's oftentimes most helpful in spurring my thinking around education, alternative forms of education, future of education is actually just like thinking about different parts of our society and economy and then kind of laying on top of that an education layer. And one person who I think does such a great job of thinking expansively, like one of the most broadly erudite and interested and interesting people that I I read is Noah Smith, the economist who used to write for Bloomberg and now has a substack that I'm forgetting the name of. But if you just search for no, uh, no Opinion is the name of his Twitter handle and Substack. I just love reading him. He's the one that actually, he had a good blog post a number of weeks ago about skills first human capital. He mentioned that Mafioso study, which was really fun. He thinks a lot about labor economics, but I don't actually know if that's his field. But he thinks just very expansively about lots of things that then have you know educational valences to them and highly recommend it.
0: Fantastic suggestion. I have not read him myself. I'll definitely look into that. Thank you so much, Eli Bildner. This has been an expansive and really, really illuminating conversation. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Truly a pleasure and a privilege, Alex. It's been really fun. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.